Our Bible reading for this evening comes from Psalm 22, verses 1 to 18, and it can be found on page 554 of the Pew Bibles. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like pots heard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is the word of the Lord. We're thinking about this question tonight. Why, God, is there so much suffering in the world if you are so good? I don't know if you ever had the discussion or conversation, if you're a Christian, with people who aren't Christians, or perhaps you aren't a Christian, and you found one of your Christian friends have a bit of a go at, and you kind of look at him and say, or look at her and say, you know, I can't really believe what you're saying because there's so many problems, hugely problematic. So, for example, how can we trust the Bible? Or how can we trust that your way is the only and right way? Or what about science? Surely science has disproved any claim that you have. I've been in that situation quite a few times. But the one question that comes, certainly in my experience, at the end of all of the other objections is this issue of suffering. I think for some, it is an intellectual or philosophical issue. It exists up here. It's in the mind. It's, you know, as, as you're thinking about Christianity, whether it's true or not, well, in the mind, here's another objection, and it's a credible objection, isn't it? There's so much suffering in the world, therefore God doesn't exist and it's up here. It's in the mind, in the brain. For others, though, it moves down a bit from here to the heart. Sometimes this question comes at the end of a long discussion. 
maybe late into the night, and I have been there when I used to stay up before 11 o'clock, sorry, after 11 o'clock. If I do that, I'm tired for six months. But it's the kind of thing that comes out at the end of a long discussion. There's so much suffering in the world, and for a lot of people, it's not just intellectual, philosophical, academic, it's personal. Perhaps their family have been through some horrendous times. Perhaps they've just looked and they look at the famines in Africa and they're moved. Perhaps they themselves are going through unspeakable things, tragedy in the family. I, I, I guarantee you that each one of us here knows that bit of this question, suffering. So please do not hear anything I say tonight as reducing the reality of suffering in your life at all. Because actually, that's what I'm going for. The reality of suffering in your life. If it hasn't come, it will come. And hopefully tonight helps to develop some kind of framework as to how to approach that. For Christian and for non-Christian, let's take two seconds to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love us so much you sent the Lord Jesus to die for us. Thank you for his word in front of us. Lord, we pray that you would help us this evening grasp how wonderful you are, how great you are, the reality of God, but also the reality of this world and the lives that we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a guy I quote probably as much as the Apostle Paul, <laughs> Richard Dawkins. And last time you had him, he didn't have a dicky bow on, but here he is tonight. I want to quote from a book that's perhaps not as popular as his popular ones, either The, God, the, the Selfish Gene or The God Delusion. This book, River Out of Eden, Our Darwinian, Darwinian View of Life. Let me... The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. And I'm not quite sure that's animals or humans, but it applies to both. It must be so, Dawkins goes on. If there ever is a time of plenty, plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. 
I don't know if you remember the film Four Weddings and a Funeral, but a line from that, from uh, River Out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life, appeared in that film. But that is, I, I guess, perhaps the boldest statement that maybe you've come across, which brings you to the ultimate conclusion. If there is no God, well, suffering exists. If there is no design at bottom, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pity, pitiless indifference, sure, so what? Just get over it. I think that's Dawkins' point, isn't it? Just get over it. Suffering through atheist eyes, that's as good as you're going to get. It's just a fact. There's nothing out there. There's nothing beyond us. So inevitably, there's no one or nothing to look to to give us an answer. There's absolutely nothing that you can do. It's just a fact. Get over it. So what? <laughs> Are you satisfied by that? Honestly, d- does that satisfy you? You may be a Dawkins aficionado. You may be a fan. You you may be people like him and the views that he expresses, this new atheist movement, which is kind of coming to a slight halt, is it? Does that satisfy? Interestingly, the late professor William Alston of Syracuse University, as a professor of philosophy, said this, the effort to demonstrate that evil disproves God is now acknowledged on almost all sides in philosophy as completely bankrupt. You see, bound up with this question, there are a number of presuppositions, aren't there? Well, there has to be evil. There has to be evil and good. You see, if the world is messed up and awful things happen, well, there's clearly evil. You must have that category. You must establish that category. Evil, good. Those two categories must exist if things happen to you and they're done to you by other people. You must also, somewhere down the line, seek an answer. In your own life, whether you're Christian or not, in your own life, as to why do these things happen to me? Why do they happen within my family? Why are they happening in Africa? Wars. Natural disasters, even. The very fact of those things, my goodness, the very fact of those things, who did that? The very fact, that was just to waken some of you up, the very fact of those things is an absolute reality. And I just wonder how satisfying is a Dawkins approach to you? This academic, William Alston, tells us the effort to demonstrate that evil disproves God. And isn't that part of the argument? There is evil in the world, and therefore, there is no God? Is in his view, and in the views of others, completely bankrupt. Suffering, I would suggest, is more of an unresolved problem within atheism. What does the atheist do with the fact of suffering? I want to argue that the only answer is despair. Absolute despair. But if you're a Christian, or you're thinking about Christianity, 
What's at the heart or the core of the argument? How does suffering disprove the existence, indeed the goodness, of God? Because of the fact of suffering, either God isn't good. He's up there and he's in a bad mood permanently. And he sends thunderbolts down to those he doesn't like. That might include you. Or he isn't God. Isn't good, isn't God. He's not powerful. He's not powerful enough to intervene and to stop it. Either God isn't good or God isn't God. The fact of suffering. That's the argument, I think, against Christianity that those who talk about suffering are really trying to get at. But I just want to put a few questions back to those who say suffering is the final nail in the coffin of the idea of God. First is this, if there is no God, why is suffering a problem? Why is it even a category if there is no God? If that's the presupposition, if that's the idea that you're coming to the question of suffering with, if there is no God, why is it a problem? Well, if there is no God, what value do you have? You're just an accident. I'm just an accident. You've no real value. If there is no God, one who's made us, one who loves us, what value can you place on a human being? Well, of course, there is attempted value placing, isn't there? And it's normally your value is what other people, other human beings think of you. But if they're just accidents, they have no real value. So how can something without value give something else meaning and value? If there is no God, well, the question shouldn't even arise for you. It shouldn't even be a problem for you, the issue of suffering. So, I want to suggest there's an implicit presupposition that God exists for the question to be asked. We're mere accidents. You're as valuable as the spilt milk or the car crash out on the road out there. Why, if there is no God and suffering is an issue for you, why are you somehow seeking some kind of better future? You really have no right to, no right to ask for or expect a better world, a better place. It's meaningless. Why do you feel injustice? Why not those six million Jews, those 20 million Russians? Why not? Why not all of that brutality? Because it's not just, well, it's meaningless. They're valueless. Why get upset? You shouldn't. You're just a meaningless, valueless thing getting upset at the death of meaningless, valueless others. Why seek a better future? Why fail injustice? Why establish morality, right and wrong, if there is no God? 
So how can you say something's evil? How can you say also something's good if there is no God? If there is no God, why is suffering a problem? Also, what about the big story of the Bible? I'm not sure at all where everyone in the room, where everyone is at in the room. Sorry, you're all in the room, so I know where you're at physically at the moment. Right, so I'm looking down at the people who are covered with a blanket in the front, pensioners in the front row here. I'm not sure where everyone is at in terms of Christianity and how you think of the Bible, how you think of the story of God. You see, there's an assumption, isn't there, that it's all just fairy tale, all just made up. I was in Disney over um, a few days in the summer. There were like a million people in every queue to the toilet. It was, uh, it was bunged. And you, you go on the rides and spinning teacups and nauseating spinning teacups. Uh, it was just great. I loved it. Uh, yeah, uh, but in the evening, you watch the Disney parade, and everything's just beautiful and wonderful, and everything's got a happy ending. Some people attempt to Disneyfy Christianity and the message of the Bible, where everything is beautiful and sweet. There is no pain. They assume that that is what the writers of the Bible are writing out of from their experience. That it's just all sweetness and light, no issues, just a beautiful Disney thing. But it's not a fairy tale. You need to read the thing, at least get a, a grasp of where it's going. When you read the Bible, you realize that it deals with the roughest, the hardest the dirtiest, the ugliest part of life in this world. And to get a handle on where it's going, it's essentially between two posts, the beginning and the ending, Genesis, Revelation. And what do we hear? Well, we hear in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we hear of the perfect world. It feels like a fairy tale because we can't conceive of just what that would be like because we're so messed up. A world where there's no issue between human beings or human beings and creation, no issue between human beings and God, no issue between God and human beings and His creation, none whatsoever. Perfect, absolutely perfect, no issue. But then there's the in-between bits. Genesis 1 and 2, the perfect world. Genesis 3, everything is messed up. Ruined. Human beings prefer their own rules, self-rule, self-determination, as opposed to God's rule. God gave human beings absolutely everything that was necessary, and, but human beings rather took the things that God made and rejected God, leaving him behind and saying, we prefer the things you've made 
to you, God. And as a consequence, as a result, in God's judgment, death comes into the world. Suffering comes into the world. Pain in childbirth, that thing that should be the most precious, beautiful moment, painful. Cursed is the ground. It's rotten. Why is there death? Why is there pain? So, we're following the story God makes. We break. And Jesus comes. We're going to be thinking about Jesus in just a second, but Jesus, right at the heart of this story, right at the heart of this book, the Bible, right at the heart where the Old Testament is talking about what will come, and then the New Testament is talking about what has come, and how all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament promises and categories are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and what happens to Jesus, the perfect man, the Genesis 1 and 2 man, dies for the Genesis 3 humanity. And then, following the story, following the trajectories, going from Genesis to Revelation, we get this final judgment. We have an innate, I think, sense of justice. I guarantee you, you're probably, well, only about three or two. You may not have used the words justice to your parents and argued. Some of you absolutely intellectual ones may have put some kind of argument to your parents. But whenever someone takes your toy or gets a bigger slice of cake or more ice cream on the plate, I guarantee you, you will say an objection. That's not fair. There's some kind of sense of justice within us. It just rankers with us, doesn't it, whenever The Bible talks about a day of reckoning for every single human being, a day of account, a day of judgment, where all of everything, including you, your life, your words, your thoughts, your reactions, and mine, brought into the light of eternity, and the perfect one sits on that bench, judge's bench. So nothing will go unanswered. The murder of the innocent will not escape judgment. Those awful atrocities will not escape account. And their perpetrators Justice will be done and justice will be seen to be done on that last day by Jesus, the judge. And I trust you noticed, the judge is also the Savior. So this is the trajectory. These are the trajectories of the Bible, the whole story. And then everything will be made new. Everything. There will be a new creation, a recreation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where the possibility of sin and rejection of God will be removed 
from all those who will be there on that last day. Those who have said, look, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you for Jesus' death instead of me and for me on the cross. What about the big story of the Bible? You see, whenever Jesus was on earth, he experienced pain. He experienced physical pain. Think about that in just a second. But his mate, Lazarus, died. We call it one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus felt that pain, the sting of death. He felt that deeply. And those were tears, not just of kind of sympathy and sadness for himself, but tears of anger and grief that God's good creation has been so torn apart, and he felt it. Jesus is God, remember. Doesn't God know suffering? In the in-between the creation and the recreation, what did Jesus experience? What did he come to know? He comes to know extreme anguish. Have you ever felt anguish? He comes to know extreme injustice. He faces injustice when it comes to the kangaroo court that examined him for sentence. Well, was he treated fairly? He lost his friends by death, not just Lazarus. He suffered. He died horrendously. The reading we had just a moment ago, Jesus uses these words as he's hanging on the Roman gibbet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was Jesus doing? Well, he was announcing a psalm, announcing a hymn from the cross. And as you read down the rest of it, you hear of the suffering and pain. Verse 17 of Psalm 22, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's anguish. That's pain. That's suffering. Jesus suffered and died horrendously. It's impossible to imagine, isn't it? If you know of suffering, you know those moments, the middle of the night, wakening up, what is going on? Please explain it to me, God. When you read the rest of this psalm, though, we see exactly what God is doing. We see that through this death, verse 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, death, resurrection, salvation, rescue, those who cannot keep themselves alive. 
Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. So what do we do with suffering? A good Belfast man, C.S. Lewis, describes suffering in these terms, God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God can't win in this question, can he? Without suffering, we ignore him. Without suffering, we wouldn't be interested or need him. If you have broken a leg or an arm, you have some pain. That pain tells you that there is something wrong. You may look at it and your arm's hanging there. Is that what happens when you break? I haven't broken an arm. Is that what happens? Your kind of arms dangling? But you certainly feel it. You may not be able to see it, but you certainly feel it. Without suffering, we ignore him. But with suffering, we blame him. We hold it against him. The issue for you may be an academic one, an intellectual one. It may indeed be that personal kind of thing I mentioned at the very start of the talk. Jesus, as he was alive and when he was doing his work before his death on the cross, Luke chapter 13, he meets some who raise the issue of suffering. So tonight isn't the first time, believe it or not, in the history of mankind that the issue of suffering has been dealt with and talked about, believe it or not. But how does Jesus deal with the issue of suffering? It's really interesting how he deals with it. Some may say he sidesteps it. But this is Jesus. So I wouldn't be so flippant as to say he sidesteps a direct answer to a direct answer question. In fact, a couple of different questions that are clearly posed to Jesus in Luke chapter 13. You can look it up. I've got the words on the screen. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So here's the first example of suffering that Jesus, there's a bit of an attempt to question Jesus and for Jesus to deal with the issue of suffering, the perplexing issue of suffering, where perhaps it was suggested that these Galileans who suffered in this were, were more sinful and they deserved it. But to see what Jesus does, is it, is it a sidestep? Or is it a precise and direct application of the issue of suffering to every human being? Let's have a look at the next one. Verse 4, here's a bit of a natural disaster. Verse 4, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, they were absolutely innocent, weren't they? This was a natural disaster. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. And then does Jesus digress or progress into some kind of philosophical argument or debate as to the furnace and so on and so forth? Is that what happens? No. He goes straight to them, goes straight to the hearts, and he says, 
unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see what Jesus does here? So this question, regardless of the reasons you're asking it in relation to suffering, do you see what Jesus does here? He goes straight for you. He goes straight for your heart. And he warns us to repent. So, as you approach this question this evening, remember how Jesus personalizes it to those who were asking. I mean, the kind of suffering present in Luke 13, it's innocent, isn't it? Natural disaster type suffering, kind of religious persecution type suffering as well. For whatever reason, Jesus goes straight to and for the heart. Wonders that your approach to the issue of suffering? Wonders that your approach to the mess that your life's in? Wonders that your approach as you look around and all the pain in the world, not just in your own life, all the pain in the world, what is it? God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world unless you too repent you will all perish we can't imagine the kind of suffering that Jesus is warning them and us to avoid this perishing type suffering the reality of eternity away from God. Jesus warns us. He says, repent. If God is so good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Where do we go to? How do we begin to formulate an answer? You go straight to that centerpiece of the whole of the Bible. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus willingly receives the punishment for sin. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forgive them, Father. They do not know what they are doing. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. Jesus is hanging there on the cross, receiving everything, everything that you have done, I've done. We're both beneficiaries of the fall and benefactors of the fall. We receive its effects, and we pass them on to others. And Jesus dies for that an ignominy. The perfect one dies for the imperfect. You may be going through something. I cannot answer why it is that you're going through that particular thing. I sit beside hospital beds 
I sat beside hospice beds. I sat in homes, beside fireplaces, where people broken in bits, tears rolling down their face. Why is this happening? But we know that the true and the living God, the lengths to which He has gone, so that eternal suffering could be avoided. See, you can die one of two ways. You can die either holding on to all of your sins, not saying, please forgive me. Please take this away from me. You can die that way, or you can die, Lord Jesus, Thank you for taking my sins on you. Please forgive me so that I may live with you forever and ever in that place where there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. Wouldn't you give your back teeth? Wouldn't you sell your granny for that? You want to know God's love? Where do you look? Do you look inside? Do you look at a rainbow? Do you look at a dove? Do you look at a beautiful sunset? Do you look from a mountaintop? Do you sit inside a huge building like this, and, or maybe even a cathedral, and try to feel it? God makes it so much simpler. He says, look at the cross. God demonstrates His love for us, His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, perhaps you want to talk more. I'd be very open to talking. Dave, myself, Stuart, and if the other ministry apprentices, anyone else who is a Christian, be very, very happy to talk to you. I, I want to commend the life course to you, which begins in a few days' time. Or ask these questions, find out more. Tick the box in the Getting Connected card, the Welcome to Church card. Please do talk about these things. Maybe you're going through a tough time. We're here for that. We want to support and gather around you and pray for you and support you as best as we can. We also want to help you think through these things. Maybe you come tonight with this question, this precise question in your mind, and maybe there's something unclear. There probably is loads of things unclear. Please talk. We're going to take a moment or so just to think, close our eyes, bow our heads, and I'm going to pray. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Father, we thank you that you know suffering. 
We thank you for Jesus willingly receiving and accepting the punishment for our sins and his death so that we can be made right with you and live with you forever. But Lord, we know that this world is messed up, that we both benefit from the fall and we hand it out. We pray, Heavenly Father, for those experiencing moments and times that are beyond comprehension. But we know that despair is not necessary because of Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, build us up so that we may know the strength of the gospel. We pray, Heavenly Father, for those who this evening are grappling with this issue in some kind of way that is preventing them from trusting you, we pray, Heavenly Father, that they would see Jesus, they would grasp the good news of Jesus, and that they too would repent. So, Father, we bring all our prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen.